The Secret Church Podcast is a resource from Radical.net. For The Secret Church 13 study guide and other resources that go along with this audio, visit Radical.net slash SC13. This is Secret Church 13, Episode 6. Hebrews 9, 27 to 28, we've read before already. It's appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. So what is this, what is this judgment? And, and this is where I really want us to hone in because every single one of us, so I'm not just talking to the person beside you, in front of you, behind you. Every single one of us one day will be resurrected to stand before God in judgment. And on that day, you will stand alone. And... And I long for you to be prepared for that day, biblically. J.I. Packer said, there are few things stressed more strongly in the Bible than the reality of God's work as judge. So here's the biblical truths. Number one, Scripture makes clear that a day of final judgment is coming. It's all over Scripture. Acts 17, Romans 2, 6, Revelation chapter 20, the dead, great and small, will stand before the throne. But it's not just scripture that makes this clear. Our own minds and hearts and lives make this clear. The desire for judgment is instinctual in us, meaning we have a desire in us for justice in the end. We have this hardwired hope that justice is going to reign one day. When we see a gunman shoot and kill children and their teachers at point-blank range, we long for justice to be served, don't we? When we see Nazi Germany systematically exterminating millions of Jewish men and women, we long for a day of justice. And there's a reason we long for that, because God's put this cry in us for justice. I love the way Habakkuk puts this, Keller puts this. Tim Keller, pastor up in New York, says, I always say to my skeptical secular friends that even if they can't believe in the resurrection, they should want it to be true. Most of them care deeply about justice for the poor, alleviating hunger and disease and caring for the environment. Yet many of them believe that the material world was caused by accident and the world and everything in it will eventually burn up. They find it discouraging that so few people care about justice without realizing their own worldview undermines any motivation to make the world a better place. Why sacrifice to the needs of others if in the end nothing we do will make any difference? However, if the resurrection of Jesus happened, that means there's infinite hope and reason to pour ourselves out for the needs of the world. The desire for judgment in us is instinctual. And the fact of judgment is inevitable. Again, both biblically and practically. See, Revelation 20, Jonathan Edwards there. Desire for judgment, instinctual in us. Fact of judgment, inevitable to us. And the warnings of judgment are undeniable around us. 2 Peter 2 recounts events like the flood in Genesis 6 and the destruction of Sodom and Grenora in Genesis 19 and says, look at, the his- look at the history. Look at the world around you. Things are not right, are they? This is not the way it should be. Full or final judgment is coming. And the scope of that judgment will be universal. No one in any nation, from any tribe, with any language will be exempt. Isaiah 66 makes very clear. Who among us will escape judgment before God who created us? The nature of judgment will be personal. We've talked about that on this day, nothing will be hidden. Everything will be revealed. And I've got Matthew 7 back here again because I want to emphasize this. The day of judgment will not ultimately determine our spiritual condition. Follow this. The day of judgment will not ultimately determine our spiritual condition. Instead, the day of judgment will truly reveal our spiritual condition. Plainly put, judgment day will make clear whether or not we knew Jesus. And what Jesus says is the only thing that will matter on that day. 
The nature of judgment will be personal. The impartiality per, partiality of judgment will be unquestionable. God shows no partiality. The wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. There is no partiality. And we've talked about the effects of judgment will be eternal. Every single one of us will stand before Christ as judge and you or I, you or I will either go to eternal punishment or eternal life. Matthew 25, 46. Biblical truths. A day of final judgment is coming and the final judge will be Christ. Jesus has prophesied in Isaiah is the one who's going to establish and uphold justice forever, bring justice to the nations. See in John 5, the Father has given all judgment to the Son. God is going to judge all men, the secrets of all men by Christ Jesus. Jesus is the one, 2 Timothy 4, 1, to judge the living and the dead. We must all appear, 2 Corinthians 5, we read earlier, before the judgment seat of Christ. And Jesus will be the final judge. The Bible teaches, interestingly, that all angels will be involved in this judgment according to Scripture. Holy angels will gather the judge, Matthew 13, Matthew 24, and fallen angels, i.e. demons, will all be judged. Second Peter says, if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to change of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. And you see the same picture in Jude 5 and 6, but obviously not just angels, all people, and all they have done will be involved in this judgment. Romans 14 makes clear, each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Ecclesiastes 11, not just each of us, but all we've done. All these things, God, for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Ecclesiastes 12, God will bring every deed into judgment, every secret thing, whether good or evil. Matthew 12, Jesus, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. No secrets on this day. So we need to realize two realities here. Revolve around two groups of people, both reflected here in Revelation 11, 18. On the day of final judgment, here's what's going to happen. One, God will justify every saint who has trusted in him. Followers of Christ who have trusted in Christ will stand before the judgment seat to give an account for themselves. And on that day, we will not be justified before God for anything we have done. Instead, we will be justified, judged innocent, solely based on trust in what Jesus has done. The Bible makes this clear. Romans 3. Where then is boasting? It's excluded. On what principle? Without observing the law? No, but on that of faith. We maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the, uh, apart from observing the law. Is God the God of Jews only? No. Not the God of Gentiles too? Yes. He's the God of Jews and Gentiles. who will judge the circumcised by faith, the Jews by faith, and the uncircumcised, the Gentiles, by the same faith. By faith alone. It's only through faith in Christ that anyone can be declared right before a holy God. That's why Romans 8 says, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And just because the believer has trusted in Christ does not mean that this future day of judgment is going to be unimportant. It's going to be very important. Randy Alcorn says, God's word treats the judgment of believers with great sobriety. It doesn't portray it as a meaningless formality. Going through the motions where we get on the real business of heavenly bliss. Rather, Scripture present it, presents it as a monumental event in which things of eternal significance are brought to light and things of eternal consequence are put into effect. On that day, every follower of Christ who's trusting in Christ, it will be declared openly and publicly that every one of our sins has been forgiven. Let me repeat that. Every sin will have been forgiven. Let me repeat that. Every sin will have been forgiven. Glory to God. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my sake, and I will not remember your sins. Praise God. On this day of judgment, it will be clearly and openly declared by God that our every sin has been forgiven. God will have, been, have removed them from us forever. Every sin and so follow this. On the day of judgment, every sin will have been forgiven and varying 
rewards for faithfulness will be distributed. Now, exactly what this means, how these rewards look, is open for a lot of discussion. But the clear teaching in the New Testament is that all who've trusted and followed Christ will be rewarded in their faithfulness to Christ in varying ways, to varying degrees, depending on their lives. Jesus talks about this in Luke 19. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Scripture exhorts us to work for the reward of the Lord, Colossians 3, 23 and 24. Now, obviously, this does not mean that we're competing with one another for rewards. That's how we often think about rewards today. Only certain people who do comparatively better than others get rewards. But that goes completely against the grain of what the New Testament is teaching here. The Bible exhorts us as a body to rejoice together in every growth in faith because we're not competing with one another for a reward. Instead, we're compelling one another on toward reward, spurring each other on, Hebrews 10 says. So, so don't miss this. It is biblically right to live for reward in heaven. Some people may think that sounds selfish and almost sounds super spiritual for somebody to say, well, my reward is God. He's all I want. Well, yes, of course. But Scripture, i.e. God in His Word, exhorts us to live for reward. And it makes sense when you consider what reward is for. Reward is for faithfulness to God, for service to His church, for the spread of His gospel, all these things He's called us to. And there's no question that we're living for these things. For the, if we love God, if God is our goal, then we will give ourselves to these things. So, on that day, God will justify every saint who has trusted in Him, every sin forgiven, bearing rewards for faithfulness distributed. At the same time, on that day, God will condemn every sinner who has turned from him. We know what's probably the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3, 16, but you go past it to read, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And then hear John's depiction of the day of judgment in Revelation chapter 20. For all those whose names are not written in the book of life, which we know from the book of Revelation is a reference to those who have not trusted in the blood of Christ the Lamb. John writes, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown in the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So on that day, follow this, on that day, every sin will come to light. God will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness. 1 Corinthians 4. Instead of every sin being forgiven, every sin will come to light. And instead of varying rewards, Degrees of reward being distributed, the Bible teaches the exact opposite for those who refuse to trust in Christ. For them, varying degrees of punishment will be enforced. Again, we don't know exactly what this means or how this will look, but when Jesus talks about coming judgment and condemnation and punishment, he speaks in, in comparative terms, talking about those who had greater knowledge or greater opportunity or whose sin was even more severe. This is severe. This is evident. Matthew 11, Luke 12, Luke 20. Now, here's the deal. On this day, two questions will matter and two destinations will result. So I want you to follow me. Two questions, two destinations. First question that will matter on this day. Did we put our faith in Christ's work? Galatians 2, all of Scripture is clear. We're justified not by our works, but through faith in Jesus Christ. I want to be absolutely clear. Our standing before God on the day of judgment can and will only be salvation if we have put our faith in Christ. Our works will not matter on that day. Dependence on our works on that day will completely miss the point of faith. On the day when you and I stand before God to give an account for what we've done, the cry of our hearts must be, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. 
Don't put your faith for that day, your hope for that day, in what you have done, even what you have done for God. The question will be, did we put our faith in Christ's work? Now, it's at that point some might say, well, then, okay, that's the only question that counts. And in a sense, it is. Absolutely it is. And we could stop here and simply move on. But here's why I don't want to move on just yet. Because Scripture warns us over and over again about spurious, superficial faith. Faith that is mere intellectual assent. Faith that is no more than what demons possess. Say, well, I believe in Jesus. Well, even the demons believe in Jesus. Every intoxicated person I've ever met on the street believes in Jesus. Big deal. I believe in his resurrection. So does the devil. So, so there is, and all over Scripture, we see a whole book, James, written to address this. We see passages like Matthew 7, we've already read, written to address this, spoken to address this. And so that's why I want to put this other question on the table that follows from the first. Do we put our faith in Christ's work? And then, question, was there evidence of faith in our work? Evidence of faith in our work. Those words are so key. You look at all these passages that I've got listed here, passages we've already looked at, and you'll see that when judgment is described, even believers, for believers in Scripture, we see judgment according to what we've done. Matthew 7, Matthew 16, the Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father. He will repay each person according to what He's done. Matthew 25, we've already talked about. Jesus' followers are recognized for what they've done. 2 Corinthians 5, will appear before the judgment seat of Christ so each one may receive what is due for what He's done in the body, whether good or evil. Then this famous warning about spurious faith in James 2, where James confronts people who claim to have faith but have no deeds and says, can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister without clothes and daily food. One of you says to them, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well found, but does nothing about its physical needs. What good is that? Faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. Someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I'll show you my faith by what I do. Faith without works, James says, is dead. You're fooling yourself if you think you've got faith, but there's no works flowing from that. Which is why Jude then encourages us to persevere in our faith and love for God. Revelation 14 is a call for endurance of the saints. And you're right. Look at the end. It says, I heard a voice from heaven saying, Right, this blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Now people read these verses and then some start to think, okay then, is is my work then the basis of whether I'm going to enter into heaven on judgment day? And the answer to that question I hope we've seen is absolutely not. Christ's work alone, Christ's work on the cross alone is the basis of our salvation, justification before God. You and I cannot earn eternal life before God. We put our faith in Christ's work. And then when we do, that reality of faith bears fruit in our lives. So on this day of judgment, when you and I stand before God, what will be the basis of justification before Him? Only basis is the work of Christ on the cross. The means by which that work is applied to our lives is by faith in that. So nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. And then in the background of your life on that day, it will be evident that such faith was real. Because Christ's work in us was clear. And so this is where we realize that mere intellectual assent will not stand on judgment day. And making an emotional decision at one point in your life and then living the rest of your life far from God will not work on that day. That's why I said earlier, do we believe in the resurrection of Jesus and do we surrender to the lordship of Jesus? 
all kinds of people who are content to pray a prayer and call themselves a Christian and move on with their lives just however they want to live, completely far from God. I have news from Scripture. You won't go to heaven if you don't want God. Is your faith in Christ's work and is that evident in the work of your life? This Sunday, we have a brother sharing testimony here in our Easter service about spending 50 years in the church, active in the church, member in the church, serving on committees in the church, leading in the church, not a follower of Christ. And so I, I ask you, have you put your faith in Christ's work? I'm not saying go work in order to be okay on judgment day. Put your faith in Christ's work. And when you do, there will be evidence of faith in your life that he produces in you by his grace through faith. So those two questions then lead to two destinations. On the day of judgment, some will be given over to a destination of everlasting joy. And then in a completely different scene, some will be given over to a destination of eternal torment, which we'll talk about more in a minute. And on this day, God will be glorified for his justice. There will be no question that he is just. And it, this, is, this is challenging. This is challenging because when we look in Revelation, you look in Revelation 15, Revelation 16, Revelation 19, passages in Revelation that talk about God's judgment coming down on unbelievers. It is graphic imagery. But what's interesting is as His justice is being poured out, God is being worshipped, which, which is challenging because we start to think God, we see God being worshipped for pouring out judgment on sinners. When we contemplate that, when we really contemplate that, we let these pictures soak in. This is challenging to comprehend. It's challenging to comprehend the wrath of God in the first place. So we have a hard time. We talk about God's love a lot. We have a hard time even thinking about God's wrath. But, but worshiping God for His wrath as He pours out judgment on sinners? How do we worship God for His wrath upon sinners in judgment? This is challenging when you really think about it. If it's not challenging, you don't have a heart. So, so why in these passages, when you look in Revelation 15, 16, and 19, do you see as judgment's being poured out, do you see saints in heaven worshiping God? What is it about what we'll realize on that day that maybe we don't fully realize today? And here's what I think it is. On that day, we will finally have a high view of God. We will see God from heaven's perspective. We will see Him. Realize with much greater clarity that he is sovereign over all. That he is glorified above all. That he is holy in all of his attributes. We'll sing with trembling in our voices what the angels sang in Isaiah 6. What we see in Revelation 4. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. And on that day we'll realize that God is righteous in all his ways. We have a tendency in our limited understanding, even our sinful misconceptions, to question the rightness of God, the justice of God. But on that day, we'll conclude with Deuteronomy 32, 4. The rock, his work is perfect, and all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. We will realize God is righteous in all his ways, and we will realize he is loving toward all his creation, that he's merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And we'll have one clear conclusion. This God, our God, is infinitely worthy of eternal worship, which is why we'll sing Revelation 4. Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things by your will. They exist and were created. 
On the day of judgment, we will have, finally have a high view of God. At the same time, we will finally have a humble view of man. And we will realize the humbling horror of our sin against God, how we have denounced the sovereignty of God, how we have defamed the glory of God. We will realize that we have dishonored the holiness of God, profaned his holy name. We will realize the ways we have despised the righteousness of God, all of us in our rebellion against him. We will realize we have denied the love of God. And so we will come to the clear conclusion that God is not only infinitely worthy of eternal worship, but follow this. We are infinitely worthy in our sin of God's eternal wrath. Oh, don't miss this. If God is infinitely and eternally glorious, infinitely and eternally holy, infinitely and eternally just, and infinitely and eternally loving, then one sin against God is an infinite offense against God. One sin against an infinitely holy God is worthy of infinitely eternal punishment. This is why we have a hard time comprehending the worship of God and His wrath and judgment because we have things totally backward. Instead of a high view of God, we have a low view of God. And instead of a humble view of man, we have a high view of ourselves. We think of man, ourselves, as basically good. We're nice, kind, deserving of second, third, fourth chances. Man is lovable with a right to independence from God, worthy of forgiveness from God, warranting happiness from God in heaven. How can God be good and send any man anywhere else, we think? Hell, torment, judgment, wrath, that's hard to understand. But not when you realize that the only thing man deserves before a holy God is everlasting eternal wrath, which is the clear message of the Bible and will be abundantly clear on the day of judgment. Our questions about God's justice will be no more on that day. D.A. Carson said, do you really want nothing but totally effective, instantaneous justice? Then go to hell. And we will realize that is true. Our questions about God's justice will be no more. Our awe at God's mercy will be forevermore. For on that day we will finally understand the depth of hope in the gospel. How at the cross on Good Friday 2,000 years ago, God expressed his wrath towards sin. God poured out his righteous judgment on sin. At the same time, God endured his wrath against sin. Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath in our place. And in this, God enabled salvation for sinners. He made him who had no sin to be sin for us in order that we might become the righteousness of God. There is no news in the world that's greater than that news. We stand before a holy God in our sin, deserving of eternal death. Yet God sent his son in our place as our substitute. So what shall we do with that news? Practical takeaways. First and foremost, those who are not followers of Christ, repent and receive the mercy of God before it's too late. Stop playing religious games. Repent, turn from your sin and yourself, trust in Christ. Hear the words of Revelation 16, 15. Jesus says, behold, I'm coming like a thief. Be ready. And for those who are followers of Christ, so many practical takeaways from this coming day of judgment. Think about all the practical ways that day affects this day. First, I exhort you, trust God completely. I put Exodus 3 here because that was a time in Israelite history when the Israelites were slaves in, in Egypt. They were wondering if God was just, would ever come to their defense. And God says, I've seen your affliction. I've heard your cries. I'm coming for you. So Christian, hear this. Amidst the challenges that this world brings you, amidst the days when it seems like these challenges and afflictions are on all sides, even the days when it seems like the wicked are prospering around you while the righteous are perishing, remember this. Be careful never to evaluate God's justice in the short term. Instead, be confident that God will assert his justice ultimately and completely in his perfect time. 
which then enables you to forgive others freely. Trust God completely, forgive others freely. Hear Jesus' command in Matthew 6. Listen to the words of Romans 12. Forgive one another. Behold, never avenge yourselves. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it's written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You see this. Christian, you and I do not need to hold grudges against anybody. Be resentful, unforgiving of anybody. Instead, we forgive Christians whose sin has been paid for by the cross of Christ. Will we not forgive them when Christ has forgiven them? Who do we think we are? The price for sin has been paid. Why do we insist on making them pay a price that he has paid? I'm not saying there's not natural temporal consequences to sin in this world. There are. Even the Lord disciplines us in our sin, yet he forgives us, so we forgive one another. But not just Christians. Brother and sister, forgive non-Christians whose sin will be paid for at the judgment seat of Christ. Think about it. Even when hurt, even when you're hurt severely by somebody else, even an enemy, Romans 12 says, we need not exact vengeance because we know that sin against us will be judged one day. Maybe in hell or hopefully, maybe that person will turn and trust in Christ and that sin will be paid for by the precious blood of Christ. Ultimately though, see the picture. When we forgive, we're confessing our confidence that judgment is coming and we're trusting the judge, capital J, judge, who's on the throne. Trust God completely. Forgive others freely. Discipline consistently and compassionately. Practical implications. Here's the deal. Hebrews 12 makes clear that God our Father disciplines us, right? That's a good thing. He disciplines us because he loves us, Hebrews 12 teaches. So God, our judge and father, disciplines us in his love. So we are wise then to discipline in ways that reflect his justice and his love. In the church, this is why Jesus tells us to confront sin in the church in Matthew 18. Why don't we have these instructions? Why don't we just sit back and we see a brother wandering in a sin and say, well, somebody else's sin is their problem. It's not my problem. That's the most unloving thing we could say to someone else. Thank God Jesus doesn't say that to us. When we see somebody else in sin, the Bible says we go after them because we know there's coming a day of judgment. We discipline in the church. If I am wandering into sin, I want the brothers and sisters who are closest to me saying, come back, pull me back, come in after me. Not saying, well, that's his deal. No, not when there's a day of judgment coming. In the church, in the home, Parents, teach, discipline your children to obey Ephesians 6. Why? Think about it in light of the doctrine of divine judgment. I want my four children to know that there's a right and a wrong, and there are consequences to doing wrong, eternal consequences to that. So I'm not going to be soft and ambiguous with them on that. I love them too much. I want them to hate what's wrong and love what's right, because I want them to know that one day they're going to stand before God as their judge, and he will not be soft and ambiguous. He will be crystal clear. Now, I don't want to discipline Ephesians 6 in ways that are harsh or, or in rage or with inconsistency because God doesn't discipline that way. I want to discipline with the love of a father who cares for his children. Discipline in the home must reflect before our children the rightness of a judge and the love of a father who one day they will stand before. We are, we are, we are hurting our children if we do not discipline them in love, and preparation for the reality of judgment to come. Discipline consistently and compassionately in the church, in the home, and walk in purity. This is the whole point in 1 Peter. He says, if you call on him as a father who judges impartially, 
according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways, not with perishable things, silver or gold, with the precious blood of Christ. Basically, Peter says here, live in fear as you await the day of judgment. Now notice what kind of fear this is not. Based on all we've seen in the New Testament, Christian, this is not a fear that God's judgment is going to come upon you. We've been justified by faith in Christ. We're resting in His sacrifice for us, First Peter says. But there is a healthy fear that comes in living in the light of God's holiness. So Christian, follow this. Walk in purity, not because we fear God's wrath towards sinners, but because we feel God's wrath towards sin. Based on all that we've seen about the day of judgment, walk in purity, not because we're worried about eternal condemnation, but because we want eternal reward. Because we're looking upward to the prize of the call that God has given us in Christ Jesus, Philippians chapter 3. We're fighting the good fight, 2 Timothy 4. And, and we witness with urgency in light of the coming day of judgment. Jesus is coming. Judgment is coming. So proclaim the gospel. How much do you have to hate somebody to sit next to them at work knowing that judgment is coming upon their soul and not say a thing to them about it? Our silence with witness is a demonstration of a lack of love. So proclaim the gospel with urgency to everybody you know and to the ends of the earth. And as you do in view of God's judgment, worship with sincerity. So we come back to this question, how do we worship God in His wrath? How do we worship God in His judgment with sincerity and with joy? How, why is it fitting to praise God in His wrath? Well, here's why. Revelation 19 shows us this picture. Think about it. God's love without wrath would be indifferent. If you love your wife, you will hate all that threatens her. If you love your kids, you will hate all that seeks to hurt them. If you love Jewish people, you will hate the Holocaust. Can you be indifferent in matters of love? Love, in this sense, requires wrath. It's good for God to hate that which destroys your soul. God's love without wrath would be indifferent. God's justice without wrath would be ineffective. If justice can't be carried out, executed, if there's no authority, then you have powerless justice. But the beauty of the Godhead is that all these attributes come together. God's love, justice, and wrath together are inscrutable. Now, I have to be honest. I didn't know what that word meant. But it's in Romans 11 below. And so that's why I'm using it. But I had to look it up when I was going through my notes. And it's got a pretty good definition. Inscrutable. Mysteriously unfathomable. That's it. God's love, justice, wrath together are mysteriously unfathomable. In the words of Becky Pippard, God's wrath is not a cranky explosion, but his subtle opposition of the cancer of sin, which is eating out the insides of the human race he loves with his whole being. So we say with Paul in Romans 11, Oh, the depth and riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgment and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has been a gift to him? that might, he might be repaid. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Thank you for listening. You can find more episodes from Secret Church and thousands of other free resources at Radical.net.